0: And I want to make sure you know there is a missionary with us this morning from the far reaches on the very, very edge of Mexico, Aaron Mills Uh, is with us this morning, so uh, make sure you, you greet Aaron, welcome him. With all the commotion, I didn't barely get to even say hi to Aaron yet. So this be your only Sunday here, Aaron? Then you head back, so yeah, it's great to see you. So how are those New Year's resolutions going, day seven? Everybody on track? Um, do them or don't do them, right? But I, I think we all should have spiritual goals, goals of our spiritual growth and life. No, no question about that. But the problem is goals fail, whether you call them New Year's resolutions or not, because we don't have accountability. And that's one thing I appreciate about it. I'm in a couple of men's studies, and there is accountability built into that. So we, we, we create spiritual goals, and then there's accountability. Very loving gentle, but consistent accountability built into it, which I find super helpful. But uh, talking about, this morning we're talking about prayer, and. but I want to mention Bible reading. Those are two key things that we, part of our our spiritual lives. And this is, I've I've mentioned this before, but this is the plan that I use. It's simply all of the chapters of the Old Testament, New Testament listed, and then you just cross them off. So if you zoom in, it, it looks like that. Very simple. So I get to determine which chapter or chapters I'm, I'm reading that particular day, whatever order I want to. Some of you really like the, the thing that tells you what to read each day, and you could do that. But that's what I use. And if you want, the, there's a golden rod copies uh, in the back literature rack over there if you want to avail yourself of that. But, but whatever it is, um, Bible, uh, word and prayer, right, as, as Seth said. So, but we are talking about prayer this morning. We're in Acts chapter 4, and uh, the title is Celebrating the Gospel Through Prayer. Uh, This week and then next week in Acts chapter 4, there's just so much here. And this prayer, I thought, needed to be dealt with on its own. I'll be reading that in just a moment. But first of all, uh, I don't think I've ever done this in a sermon before, but uh, show a Calvin Hobbes cartoon. Uh, Calvin Hobbes clearly my favorite cartoon strip of all time I mean you know if you think otherwise you're wrong Um, Calvin Hobbes just the best Uh, and this one really seemed to fit this morning so okay there's always something let's move downstairs Uh, why don't we just do that Um, so Calvin is uh, About to water some flowers, so you you want some water, huh? Well, I've got a a big can of it here. So he probably planted the flowers, and he wants to to take care of them, etc. But then he says, it's up to me to decide if you get water or not. I control your fate. Your very lives are in my hands. Without me, you're as good as dead. Without me, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) And the obvious point is, you and I are far too much like Calvin, in, the, in the, that we think that we are in control, ultimate control, of our circumstances. We feel like the outcome depends on us. We bear that weight. But we know in this, in this comic strip, God, not Calvin, was in control of whether that, those flowers got water or not. You and I don't know how to trust God for the outcome of certain hard things in our life, so we try to wrestle control from God and do it ourselves, So the question is, how do we learn to to stay in our lane? Because having control is not our lane. You're in the wrong lane if that's what you're wanting to do. It's not saying you give up responsibility of your part. But if you're trying to play God's part, you are in the wrong lane. Well, in this chapter, the middle of uh, chapter 4, we return to Peter and John's story that started all the way back in chapter 3. The healing of a lame man. He was 40 years old. He had been lame since birth. Then Peter... Huge crowds gathered around, and then Peter preached a sermon, and then they were arrested, they were thrown in jail, then they were released and said, don't you ever preach in the name of Jesus again. Then uh, they come back, and I don't know what you would do after something like that. Uh, Leave town, uh, you know, get, get out of Dodge. There's a lot of options there. But they gathered their best friends and prayed together, they prayed one of the most famous prayers in all of the Bible. And as they did so, they celebrated the gospel through their prayers. They're laying down a pattern for us to follow. So if you want to follow along with me at verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I think anytime we're talking about prayer, a chief question ought to be, what is the goal of of prayer well ultimately I believe the scripture teaches the goal of prayer is to change us to change us now wonderfully remarkably God listens and responds to our prayers because every single one of us have been a recipient of answered prayer some of those really in the, the miraculous realm some of them you might say rather ordinary uh, but we've all been the benefactors of answered prayer and even though we tend to think of prayer as asking I believe the fundamental purpose of prayer is to change us. In other words, to specifically to align our will with God's will. To align our will with God's will. Even in times of great grief, a prayer of lament is intended to do this very thing. It's a form of submission to the Lord's will, but he knows that as we align to his will, we get more peace and more joy. And just the opposite, as we are not aligned to his will, we have less peace and we have less joy. But I don't know about you, but when I face a problem, one of my first responses is to fix the problem. Can you relate? See a problem, fix a problem. See a problem, fix a problem. You just sort of of work your way through. My natural reaction isn't necessarily always to pray. But this prayer has always been one of my favorites, and I've benefited from meditating on it this week. And not only do we align with God's will through prayer, but as the title of the message says, we, we celebrate the gospel. There are gospel truths that we're reminding ourselves of. We are preaching the gospel while we pray. So let me give you the, the four points, four gospel truths in this prayer. Very simple. God rules, God wins, God saves, and God provides. And our goal this morning, I want you to keep this in mind throughout all of it. Our goal is that we should be at the point where I want what God wants—that's how you know if you're aligned with the will of God. That I come to want what God wants. So, number one, God rules. Verse twenty-three again. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all to the chief priests and the elders. Who said to them, "When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord," they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, as, as believers, we, we talk a lot about God's sovereignty, and, and we should. It's, it's all over Scripture. But I find it helpful to learn about God's sovereignty from pagans. Have you ever considered that? That there, there's a couple of pagans in the Bible that really help us understand God's sovereignty. And specifically, I'm talking about the story of Jonah. We, we know the story of Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh. No, he runs away uh, from the Lord. Uh, So this is what happened now. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So we have a ship full of pagans crying out to their gods. So we can imagine they're, they're also calling out, hey, anybody worship the God of the sea? Anyone? Anyone? God of the tempest? Anyone? Uh, speak up because we specifically need you. That's the sort of thing uh, that was happening. They're, they're panicking. They're all crying out to their own God. They're desperate for a way to manipulate their gods into changing their circumstances. That's key. Manipulating gods into changing their circumstances. story goes on. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. exceedingly afraid, because of Jonah's God. Jonah's God was the God who of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. You see, it wasn't just the God of the sea. It wasn't just the God of the dry land. It wasn't the, the God of the sun, the moon God, and all those separate gods. It was the God who made everything. And once they knew that that was the God who was punishing them, they were exceedingly Afraid. So, in other words, the pagans understood God's sovereignty in that moment better than Jonah did, and sadly that continued on as Jonah reluctantly did go, sort of semi-repented, reluctantly did go to Nineveh, uh, extremely reluctantly preached there, and God's sovereign salvation fell upon the whole town. So Jonah understood that God was not going to change his circumstances, right? The storm was always already upon him, and it, he knew it was his fault. God was not going to calm the storm. So what did Jonah do? Well, he could have repented, but he didn't. He treated God like a pagan god. Do you, do you see what I mean? Because what did he do? He offered himself as a sacrifice. Think about it. It's a pagan sacrifice. It's a human sacrifice. Throw me into the sea, and my pagan god will, will calm the storm. It's blasphemous. It's disgusting. He could have repented before a sovereign Lord, but instead he ran away straight into his own demise. But God had other plans. But the problem is that you and I often treat God like he is a pagan God. We seek him out so that he will change our circumstances. We, we, we don't think we're manipulating God, but that's what we want to do for prayer, through prayer so that he will change our circumstances. That's most of our prayers, either asking God to change our circumstances or asking him to change someone else's circumstances. Which reminds me of Elizabeth Elliot's definition of suffering, which is so helpful. Suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Just all of life fits into one of those two. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have, and those two things become then also the core of our praying. That's how we pray. Lord, give us this thing that we want, and Lord, please take away this thing that we don't want. If we're honest, that's how our prayers so often go. But that's not how the disciples prayed that day. They just rested in God's sovereignty over all things. Because if God created everything, then he rules everything. And when it comes to prayer, isn't that the kind of God you want to pray to? The one who is sovereign over the universe. So that was the first step of their their prayer, the first step of their gaining peace. Secondly, God wins. And the fact that God wins flows naturally from the truth that God rules everything. Those two obviously go together. But the disciples were specifically making this truth uh, even more explicit by quoting, not just quoting, but praying Psalm chapter 2. And they they prayed the first part of it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So before we get into the details, I want you to note that the disciples are also modeling for us how to pray through scripture, right? Taking a psalm, a truth, and then just praying it. I hope you've done that. If not, consider it, please. This is part of my pattern. I would say maybe half the time that I have my personal Bible reading and prayer, I will take a psalm, and read through it, and then uh, often then uh, either I pray through it the first time, I read through it, and then pray through it again. And, and you, you have this experience. You read a psalm, you're like, I don't have like, people shooting arrows at me, <laughs> literally, right? It, it doesn't feel like it necessarily applies directly to me today, yet there are always those truths that you can glean from it. And, and it's like, I don't know what to pray today. Pray a psalm. So th- that's what they're modeling for us, first of all. And the disciples were obviously applying this psalm to the religious leaders because they, the religious leaders, the power elites, were raging against God in that moment by persecuting the disciples. So one application for them was obviously, and I think this is why they prayed the prayer, is that God knew this was going to happen because he had predicted it would happen. In fact, the psalm they were quoting is now 3,000 years old from our perspective, but it was 1,000 years old for them. And what they would conclude is, listen, God told us a thousand years ago. Yes, I know Jesus said you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be persecuted. But God said a thousand years ago and laid it down in his holy word that the nations will rage against us. So in other words, don't be surprised when the nations rage. Don't be surprised when persecution comes your way. I predicted a thousand years ago. And most importantly, don't take it personally. Because who are they raging against? The Lord and against his anointed. Now, now we get in the way, right? We're we're what they call collateral damage. But they're not aiming at us. They're aiming at the Lord. Now, the disciples quit there. Um, If I were in control of things, I would have had them pray through the rest of the psalm. It's so good, but I want to mention the, the next section here. So, they... Took counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, so this is what the enemies who were raging said, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Here's the response. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The nations rage because they feel constrained by God and his rule over them, right? That's that's what it means to worship a sovereign Lord, is that he is in control, I'm not, therefore I feel constrained by, by him, and they want the opposite of that. They want to burst those bonds. They want to remove those shackles that they perceive are shackles. God rules, but people don't like to be ruled by God. That's our problem as well. For example, why do so many people walk away from the faith when they've been raised in the faith from their youth? So now I'm talking about that generally speaking, broadly speaking, this happens maybe age 12 to 25. Most people who, who are raised in the Christian faith and who walk away from the Lord, it's something's gonna happen in that period. So so maybe perk up your ears a little bit, young people. Many reasons why this could happen, but, but here's a really huge reason. They simply want to live the way they want to live. It's simple as that. They, they, don't, they don't like being constrained. They want to they break the bonds. They want to cast away the cords. But they have choices. You have choices. One choice is to submit yourself to love God, and in, in his power that he supplies, live accordingly. Stumble your way forward and and get all sorts of help and and counsel to do that. That, That's one option. Second, and this is the beginning of the downfall, they could decide to violate God's commands. But because they've been raised in the faith, they feel what? What did Don talk about? Guilty. Guilty. And, and generally, it's, it's a Holy Spirit. It's, it's a genuine conviction from the Lord. So they have that burden upon them. So, so they're doing what they want, but, but they don't fully enjoy it because God is convicting them. He, he's sort of stealing some of their joy. And they have this burden of guilt. So what happens often then is step three, they grow tired of the guilt that they feel. Uh, So they they move to step three, where they just reject God's commands altogether. Again, to use the words of the psalmist, they uh, burst their bonds and cast away their cords. No more constraints. Then they conclude, this because it gets easier, you know what, this Christianity thing never really was true. That's my parents' gig, you know. They, my church, they brainwash me. My parents, they brainwash me. It's not true. None of it's true. So they reject, that's why they reject the whole thing. Often because they want to live the way they want to live. No more guilt. That's the response of the nations and of ordinary people. Even, even, so, even in small ways, we can do that. I don't like this. I don't like this constraint. I'd rather it be gone. But then we have God's reply. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Don't you love the fact God is laughing at the nations raging? Right? There's Nothing makes somebody more mad if they're so mad at you and you just sort of smile. You're not trying to be a jerk. You just, for whatever reason, you're like, okay, you do your thing. I'm just... That really gets people mad, doesn't it? But this is even, you know, a thousand times greater. God is laughing at them. He's deriding them. He's mocking their clenched fists. Here they are like this, and he just, oh, come on. you got to be kidding me. He mocks them because the nations hold no more power over God than a fly buzzing around our head holds over us. And the reason he laughs is he knows he's going to win. The final outcome, of course, has been determined from before the foundation of the world. So, so, yes, God wins. And the core of that winning, the core of that victory is Jesus, because verse 6 is the crescendo of the psalm. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king is coming, is what the psalmist is saying, what David is saying. And, of course, that was a thousand years before Christ came, so the king has Arrived. The king has already here. He has been installed in Zion. That's the new Jerusalem. But prayer in the absence of final victory is hopeless. Do you, do you understand? Prayer in the absence of final victory leaves us in a hopeless state. But when we know that God wins, we also know that we will ultimately win. We are reminded that all loss, all pain is ultimately redemptive. And no, and not even the rage of ungodly nations can ultimately take anything of eternal value from us. Now, we can be stripped of things. We are stripped of things. Important things in our life. Some, mo- much of it not important. But nothing of eternal value can be harmed by the rage of the nations. Thirdly, God saves. Verse 27 again. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So using that same phrase, anointing here. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This we have here is the perfect intersection of God's sovereignty and of God's salvation. This is already the second time the supremacy of God in salvation has been taught by Peter. Peter. He mentioned it, uh, he brought it to mind in chapter 2. He said this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Very much identical language yet here in chapter 4. He he expands that a little bit, especially who the lawless men and women were. First of all, he says, Herod and Pontius Pilate. He names them by name. I wouldn't want to be named in the scripture according to, to that outcome. And we know the gospel stories. We know the role they played. They were were guilty, according to God's plan, yet fully culpable for all that they did. And that applies to all these lawless men. And then he also identified Gentiles, probably referring to all the Romans, from governing authorities all the way down to the soldiers who who flogged Jesus and and nailed his hands and, and feet to the cross, all of them, Gentiles, guilty. But then he adds, calls out the last group, and the people of Israel. Now who's that? It was the crowds screaming for his crucifixion. The crowds who worshipped him less than a week ago turned their backs on him. All of the people of Israel (coughs) which is exactly what John described in the first chapter of his gospel. He, that is the word, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did what? Not receive him. His own people rejected him. It's enough that, that, that the Gentiles were rejected, but his own people rejected him. And they simply did what the people of Israel had always done throughout the Old Testament. They persecuted and, persecuted and killed the prophets before Jesus. Now, it's really easy when, when somebody is caught in a sin or when we see all the, the bad people in the story and we think, you know what? I'm not like them. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good character, and if if you'd plop me down in that situation, I'm pretty sure I would have figured out who Jesus was and put my faith in him. Almost certainly, we would not have, without, again, God's sovereign interaction here in our lives. And and, and Paul makes this abundantly clear from uh, uh, Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So a couple of truths here. We are enemies, we enemies of God, enemies, and we were ungodly sinners. There was no righteousness in us whatsoever. But again, all these lawless men and women acted exactly according to the sovereign will of God. Remember a couple of weeks ago in... Christmas Eve, Hebrews chapter 2, we, we were reminded that God had to become a man, that it was something that, that was necessary, that God take on human flesh. All of that for us. This was God's sovereign plan. He predestined that all these people would play their precise roles just as God had planned it. And this was, uh, you've got to catch this, this was the main thing the disciples were thinking about and praying about. Just after their release, in the midst of this persecution, they gather together and celebrate this one fact, chiefly above all God saved me. God saved me. I submit to you, that should be even a part of our prayers, right? The, the gratitude that we're meditating on what we were. That, that's why these scriptures are laid down, and the Bible constantly celebrates you were this, but now you are this. Paul says in Ephesians, you were darkness, not just you lived in darkness. You were darkness, and now you are children of light. You are. Your, your very identity is changed, you see? You're a new creation, as Paul says in Galatians. These are the things that we should be celebrating. The nations will rage, but God set his king on Zion's hill. God's sovereignty over their salvation in that time of persecution Brought them great peace. And then finally, God provides. But remembering our goal here, point that out. I want what God wants. That, that's, where, that's, that's where we're headed. I want, I want what God wants. But imagine this: place ourselves. In the disciples role you're just threatened by some of the most powerful men in the city and then you go find all your closest friends and, and you're going to pray what do you pray about what's the what's the content of your prayer at that point what do you want god to do for you what do you want him to provide in that moment do you think he's going to give you the thing that you want or do you think he's going to take away the thing you don't want is that probably what you're going to pray? That's probably, probably what I'm going to pray because my natural instincts do not follow what they asked for. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's not what I would pray. I, I don't think so. They, you could say they, they had just fallen off a proverbial horse, right? They, they did their witness, they were persecuted, and now they're like, put me back on. I, w- I want to get in there again. Or it's like they, they escaped a battle and they bound up their wounds and they said, put me back in. Put me at the front lines. They went right back at it. Not that we should pray to be persecuted. That, don't misunderstand that. They didn't want to be persecuted. They weren't praying to be persecuted. They're just praying for something, boldness, which will lead to more persecution. You could argue they're praying for more, but they're not. They're not not praying for more persecution. They're praying for God to empower them to be bold. In a time when they're most likely to what? Shrink away. That's our natural reaction. It is, for that reason, one of the most faith-filled prayers in the entire Bible. And Paul, remarkably, Paul, even after all his church plan, all his missionary endeavors, he asks for his fellow believers to pray that he would be more bold. I mean, just like the boldest character in the New Testament, but he says this. Pray for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, so he's in prison, praying for more boldness, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Remarkable. And, of course, we see the immediate answer to the disciples' prayer. That's a gift, right? We don't don't usually get an immediate answer to our prayers. And not only was it immediate, it was answered exactly in the way they asked for it. Verse 31. After they prayed, presumably immediately, the place where their meeting was shaken. God's shaken things up. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Exactly what they prayed for. So, what I want to do in coming to an end here is apply this to one of our own prayers. So, so, how do these truths, celebrating the gospel, align ourselves with God's will. Let's say you're praying, pretty common in this group, praying for a child or a grandchild. That doesn't cover everybody, but praying for a child or grandchild. And I don't have to tell you what to pray for. You, you immediately think, oh, I have been praying for this thing. So, so have whatever that is in mind. And... Remember, your goal, align yourself with God's will. I want what God wants in your prayer. Maybe that's a new thought for you. So if we're modeling our prayer after the disciples' prayer, first of all, we're going to remind ourselves that God rules everything because he created everything. So as you are on your knees or in your easy chair, you are addressing the sovereign creator of the universe who's in absolute control. He's the only one. He's the only one you'd want to pray to. He's the only one who can do anything for you. You also remind yourself that no matter what is raging around you, God ultimately wins in the end. Yes, there is sin in the world. There is pain in everyone's life. And as a parent, what's the one thing you want to do? Remove pain from my child's life. Take away the pain from my grandkids' life. That's, that's, we get caught up in that. It becomes our goal. It's a good desire. And, and I'm not saying don't, don't aim at that. to Be irresponsible but it can't be our chief goal. And understand, it's fine that whatever you have been praying for your child or grandchild, it's probably fine to ask for those things because I believe God is honored when we ask him, when we ask and seek and knock because it shows our absolute dependency upon him that we are powerless to change anything and Lord, if you'd be so gracious as to give us this thing, we know you're the only one who can. But your goal ultimately is to emerge from that prayer somewhat changed, that you're starting more to want what God wants. Then you rehearse your gratitude for all that God has done in saving you. As we said before, you're, you're, it, it feels foreign. Uh, hold on, I'm praying for, for my child because he or she's been really sick, but you want me to be grateful for your salvation? Yes, yes, that's what, that's what, that's what we want. We also want to preach the gospel to ourselves. No matter what's happening around me, I am Just bathing, um, I'm percolating in the truths that God saved me. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. Finally, you ask God to provide something for your child. Now, you may not get the, the thing that you want. You may not get rid of the thing that you don't want. But if you are on your way to wanting what God wants, that's when the peace and joy begins to descend upon you. And I was reminded of a quite a remarkable story of this happened uh, among, with the elder team. This is many years ago, and uh, I point here because we have a meeting there. And we were at a crisis. I mean, one of the great crises of my pastoring here. And we had no idea what to do. I mean, it was the, the most lost and desperate I have ever felt as an elder before or since. And, and we're wrestling and wrestling, and what are we trying to do? We're trying to solve a problem. We're trying to we see a problem. We, it's clear, problems, and we have to solve the problems. Not that we hadn't prayed about it, we had. But we, we finally said, let's pray again. We've got to pray. Praying, of course, for wisdom, all of that. We prayed. It's one of two of the most remarkable prayer times I've ever had in my entire life. This perfect peace descended upon us, and God gave us all the answers. We all, we all just like light bulbs, literally, we like, that's it. That's what we should do. That's what we feel God leading us to do. It was glorious. I will never forget it as long as I live. Now, you could say, well, oh, you got what you wanted, right? That's beside the point. It was the peace that descended upon us was the most beautiful thing. That, I think, is our model. That is my prayer for all of us. Let's pray to that end. Father, our, our, our foolishness knows no bounds at times. You, you, you laugh at us. You mock our clenched fists. But Father, if if we know you, if we're your child, as Don reminded us, there's no condemnation. You mean us no harm. You mean us only for good, the best. And the best, of course, is you. That we would want what you want. Father, bend us, shape us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.